I only got my first car about a year ago. Before then, I rented cars. As part of my business at the time, I would charge people for my rental as part of my fee. And almost every weekend, I drove a brand new car. Beautiful cars, fast cars, shiny cars. They never had problems. They didn't make squeaks or noises. The problem was, when it, came, when it came time for me to get a car, I wasn't able to get the kind of car that I wanted. I wanted something new. I wanted something fast. I wanted something shiny. I wanted something with the new car smell. But the only thing that I could afford were cars that had the used car smell, the 10-year-old car smell, the family of four with a dog car smell. And so what I wanted and what I got were completely different things. I wanted the sports car, I got a 10-year-old SUV. Are things in your life kind of like that? Did things turn out differently than what you thought, differently than what you wanted? Is this career that you're in right now the career that you wanted growing up? Growing up, for many years, I wanted to be a ninja. I wanted to jump out of trees and smack my enemies with swords. I still want to. But is your current career what you thought it would be? Is your family what you thought it would be? Is your relationship with your family what you thought it would be? If things turned out differently than what you planned on. Do you ever look around and wonder if somehow things turned out differently for God than what he thought it would be? Did his plans change or fail? Or did his promises somehow fail? Like, you can look at even these past two years and you can question, is, is this all part of God's great plan? But even more broadly, I'm talking about like the whole history of the world, right? God made two people and then they screwed up. And so he had to kick them out of the garden. And then they started multiplying, and the, the people on earth started doing wicked, terrible things. So he sent a flood to wipe out everybody and just restart with one family. And then that family started doing really bad things as well. And so he said to them, he came to Abraham and said, okay, let's make a covenant. I will be your God, you will be my people. I'm going to bless you, and I'm also going to bless the whole world through you. The Messiah will come through you, Jesus, the pinnacle of redemption history. And all people will come to know him and be blessed through him. Great. Okay. And so God does what he says. He sent Jesus, the Messiah, through his people. Jesus comes. And not all of God's people receive him. Some of them reject him. They have him killed. Some of God's people reject their Messiah. And yet also... Some Gentiles, some people outside of Israel, start coming and accepting the Messiah. Some of God's people reject him, and some people outside of God's people begin to accept him. And now the Apostle Paul is this missionary traveling around the Gentile world and spreading the news of Jesus. Was that all part of the plan? Have God's promises failed somehow? This covenant he made with Israel, has he failed to honor this? This is the question that Paul is addressing in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of chapter of the book of Romans. Romans 8, what happened just before Christmas, we just wrapped it up, was this big celebration of all that God has done, all of who God is, how he redeems us, how he adopts us into his family. Us who were out have now been brought in. We've been grafted into the family of faith. But now there's this question of how all of this relates to the covenant that God had made with his people beforehand. 
How does all of this relate to all that's happened beforehand in all of the Old Testament? How do all these two things link together? And two weeks ago, we looked at the first part of Paul's response to this question, this question of have God's plans and purposes and promises failed? And Paul said no. He said no two weeks ago. He said that not everyone who is in Israel is part of Israel. Not everyone who's part of the nation of Israel is part of God's family. You can be genetically offspring of Abraham without being considered a child of Abraham. It's not so much about who your father is on earth, it's about who your heavenly father is. Further, there's actually plenty of precedent in the Old Testament of God choosing to use people for his purposes and passing over other people. God uses some people for this purpose and some people for this purpose. God chose Isaac and Jacob, but not Ishmael and Esau to the line, to be the line that the Messiah comes through. So God can choose to use who he wants for his great purposes. N.T. Wright summarizes God's great purpose as this. God had a single plan all along through which he intended to rescue the world and the human race. And that this single plan was centered upon the call of Israel, a call which Paul saw coming to fruition in Israel's representative, the Messiah. Okay, so today we're looking at another objection to this. Is it unjust for God to choose to expand his family to include those who are outside of Israel, the Gentiles? Is he unjust to allow some members of Israel to reject the Messiah? Is God unjust to choose to use who he wants for a single plan? Is God unjust to include the Gentiles in his single plan? This is the question that Paul is addressing today in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 24. If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to pull it up, open it up, but we'll have it on the screen as well. What then shall, pardon me, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God wrong to do this? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So to prove his point that God is not being unjust, Paul's quoting from Exodus. Paul is quoting from stories that everyone would have known to show that God is consistent. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this specific quote is from Exodus 33, verse 19. This is where God is revealing himself to Moses. It's a very famous encounter. And when Paul quotes this, it would bring up the whole encounter to people's minds. This is where God is revealing his character to Moses. Moses says, reveal yourself to me. And God starts revealing himself. He says, I'm going to have mercy on whom I want to have mercy. And this dialogue continues all the way down to Exodus 34. And there's a very interesting part of the dialogue where God talks more about his mercy, his character, his forgiveness. And this portion of Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, it's the most quoted verse in all of Scripture by other parts of Scripture. So this part that God's about to say is the most highlighted part by God himself in Scripture. It's the most quoted in other books of the Bible. Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. God says this about his mercy to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So the first part of Paul's response to his objector is this. There are no limits on God's mercy. Is God wrong to expand his purposes to include these people? No. Look at this. Day one, God interacting with his people, Exodus. God's saying, there are no limits to my mercy. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. This is totally up to me. This has nothing to do with human exertion or will. The only thing that determines who God will have mercy on is himself. And he is a God of mercy. Okay. Knowing this, let's continue on. 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. This means brought you into this position. For this very purpose, one, I can put this right here, that I might show my power in you, and two, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul is now showing the, the inverse of this claim that he just made, the other side of the point. That God can choose to use who he wants. He can choose to use who he wants through his mercy. He can also choose to use who he wants for his judgment. This, this passage here, it's a real puzzle. I mentioned two weeks ago that Romans 9 is one of the most theologically controversial chapters in all of Scripture. And perhaps these verses are the most controversial portion of the most controversial passage in all of Scripture. So buckle up. These are going to be the greatest four hours of your life. Let's dive in and see what's happening here. Paul here is referring to the story of Exodus. He's using uh, Moses and Pharaoh as examples of God using people through his mercy or through his judgment. The most powerful nation at the time of the Exodus story was Egypt, and their ruler was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was said to be a son of the gods, an incarnate son of the gods. And there was a conflict between Pharaoh and the real God, because the people of Israel at this time were enslaved in Egypt. They were kept there, used and abused, and enslaved. So there's a conflict between Pharaoh and the real God, between Pharaoh's purposes and between God's purposes, between Pharaoh's kingdom and God's kingdom, between Pharaoh's glory and God's glory. There was a conflict here. God shows up to Pharaoh through his servant Moses and says, you are not the real God, I am. Your kingdom is not the real kingdom, mine is. These people aren't yours, they're mine. You don't command them, I do. And while I'm here, I'm gonna give you some commandments as well. Let my people go. And how does Pharaoh respond? In Exodus 5, verse 2, Pharaoh responds like this. He just says, who is the Lord? He says to God, I haven't heard of you. I don't know what you're talking about. These are my people. This is my kingdom. They serve for my glory. I'm not letting them go. He turns him away. We should see a little bit of ourselves in Pharaoh. We say this as well. We say, I am my own person. I am my own authority. I can do what I want. No one can tell me what to do. Now, what follows next in the story of Exodus is puzzling because it appears, at least on the surface, that the Bible is saying two different things. It says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. But also in the story of Exodus, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It's about 10 different times where it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and there's 
seven or eight different times where it says Pharaoh hardens his own heart. So if we're looking at this puzzle, we've got two different piles of pieces and we're trying to make them all fit together. And as we're trying to make these difficult pieces fit together, we can't just ignore one half of them and use these pieces that all seem to work well, okay? We can't just say that only Pharaoh hardened his own heart. We can't say, okay, Pharaoh has complete free will. He does whatever he wants and God has no say. You can't just say that. Because look, it says that God also hardened Pharaoh's heart. But we can't only look at these verses and say, God does whatever he wants. He completely determines everything and people have no freedom in choosing what their actions are. We see both. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. Did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Yes. Yes, as well. Some may think that it was unjust if God hardened Pharaoh's heart and then punished him for it. That would raise a question of injustice. How can you punish someone for something that they had no control over? The question isn't whether God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but how. How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? This is how I kind of understand the conflict that's happening here. Okay, so here is how this all took place. Pharaoh said that he would not let God's people go. And so God sent plagues in response. He actually sent 10 plagues to Egypt, to Pharaoh. Each plague increased in severity and it also represented the death of a different Egyptian god. The Egypt, Egypt at the time had a pantheon of gods. We say that Christianity is theistic, theism, it's a personal god. The Egyptian religion at the time was polytheistic. There were many different gods. So God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says no, and God decides to show him who is really in charge, who is the supreme authority, who is the real spiritual power in the world. And so God sends 10 different plagues, and these plagues represent the death of different Egyptian gods. They're really cool. The first, God is showing his supremacy over their god, Happy, Happy, H-A-P-I, the god of the Nile, and the plague was turning the water of the Nile into blood. Then God comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. God sends the second plague against the goddess of fertility, water, and renewal. Hecate, her head was a frog, god of fertility. I don't know. And so frogs come from the river. There's this infestation of frogs in all of Egypt. The third plague was the Egyptian god over the earth. And so Moses struck his staff down into the dust. The dust went up and there was a grand infestation of lice from the earth, from their own God who was supposed to protect them from these things. Third plague, God comes back through Moses to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Plague number four is against the Egyptian God of creation, rebirth, and movement of the sun. And so there are swarms of flies that blot out the sun. The fifth plague is against the goddess of love and protection. She had the head of a cow, and so there is the death of all Egyptian cattle and livestock. Again, Moses comes and says, let God's people go. Pharaoh says, no. Plague number six is against the Egyptian god Isis, the goddess of medicine and peace. There's an outbreak of boils and sores. Moses comes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. He says, no. Plagues. Seven is against the goddess of the sky. Massive Pieces of hail come down, and right before they hit the ground, they turn into fire, and they 
cast carnage across the land. Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Plague number eight is against Seth, the god of storms and disorder, because locusts are sent from the sky and they destroy everything in their path. Finally, Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. And the final plague casts down Pharaoh himself. He's said to be the son of the gods. And God takes out all of the firstborn sons in Egypt, just like Pharaoh tried to do unsuccessfully beforehand. God says, you can't come for my children, but I can come for yours. And so one by one, plague by plague, God is saying, Pharaoh, you're not God. You're not the Lord of your life. You're not the Lord of these people. Repent of this. Turn from this. Let me be me. Let God be God. But that made Pharaoh's heart harder and harder and harder. Each time these plagues came and God proclaimed who he was and who Pharaoh actually was and made Pharaoh's heart harder and harder. Do you know people like this? The more God reveals himself, the nicer he is, the harder they become. If someone decides that you are their enemy, anything that you do is an act of war. You say, I love you. Hey, don't say that. I hate you. Okay, well, what can I do? Nothing. Okay, is there anything I can say? Nothing. When someone has decided that you are their enemy, anything you do makes it worse. It's taken as an act of war. Mercy only makes them more mad. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, he explained it this way. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. I just finished uh, going through the Lord of the Rings in the final book. There's the character Saruman, and he's cast down from his position and power, and he's shown mercy by all the characters. And the more mercy that he's shown by the characters makes him hate them even more, and he lashes out at them even more, and they show him more mercy, and it makes him even more hard of heart. If you have a tender heart, the gospel melts you. And if you have a hard heart, the gospel hardens you. An unhealthy person hates healthy things. An unloving person hates love. An ungracious person hates grace. An unforgiving person hates forgiveness. So I would contend, and this is just, this is just me talking, this is how I can kind of understand this, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart indirectly. These are just some of my own views. You, you can disagree with this. We talked two weeks ago about how there's biblically primary and secondary issues, open-handed and closed-handed issues. This is one of the parts where you can disagree with this. I spent the better part of the Christmas break reading books and commentaries and articles by different Christians who disagree on this about what God actually is doing here. I would contend that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart indirectly. Uh, why? Well, God hardens Pharaoh's heart by showing him that he, the God of Israel, is the true God. And so God initiates the circumstances that harden Pharaoh's hearts, yes, but Pharaoh is the one who responds to God and these circumstances in anger and in hardening of his own heart. Thus, he's also the one doing the hardening. So did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. And did Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. God is sovereign over the circumstances. We are responsible for our response. So you see here how God is the one in control. He's the one calling the shots, but also Pharaoh is responsible for responding to what God is doing in his life. God raised him up knowing how he would respond. 
And then Pharaoh does respond in this way with hardness, and it helps to accomplish God's purposes. It helps to proclaim God's name in all of the earth. We saw in Joshua chapter 2, back when we were studying Rahab, that when the spies came to Rahab in Jericho, in the land of Canaan, she said, yes, we've heard of what your God did for his people in Egypt, and our hearts melted. There's two other portions in scripture where people groups say, yes, we heard of what your God did to Egypt, the most powerful nation at the time. We heard what he did to Pharaoh, the most powerful man at the time. We heard what your God did for his people. God is always faithful to his promises. God always accomplishes his purposes. What looks like failure is actually victory. You won't let my people go? Fine, I'm going to deliver them, but now it's going to be more painful for you and more spectacular for me. That's why Romans 8:28 can say, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And what's this purpose? The, God's purpose is to bless the world through himself, through his son, and to redeem all things back to himself. So look at this. This is how we can celebrate the sovereignty. What, what kind of God is this who even has his enemies accomplishing his purposes and his will? Look at the peace this can give us. Look at the confidence this can give us. Look at the evidence we have over thousands of years that we can trust that God will work our circumstances together for their good. Now, given this right here, Paul anticipates another objection. Paul anticipates another objection. Let's keep going on. Verses 19 to 21. Paul says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? It's basically saying this, hey, if God will accomplish his purposes, regardless of what we do, whether we obey or don't obey, if God can get whatever he wants either way, why are we still unaccountable for this? This is how Paul responds. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? A bit harsh. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter, this will be important, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? At face value, this is a little bit harsh. Paul says, who are you to question how God decides to use your life. Doesn't the creator have the right to decide how he uses his creation? God's plan all along has been to use his people to bring the blessing, the Messiah, who will bless all of the world. And he can use people in his scheme and redemption however he likes. If they respond in hardness of heart, he can use them. If they respond in mercy, he can use them. This is true, but it's not very comforting, right? No one's putting this verse on mugs either. No one's getting this tattooed. No one's posting this on their social media. My verse of the day is, who are you to question the potter, oh man? No, it's, it seems very harsh at face value. I will grant that. But if part of scripture 
seems off-putting at first. Dive deeper. It's worth it, I promise. This is actually a proclamation of God's mercy, as counterintuitive as it may see at face value. Why? This metaphor of potter and clay, this is also something that Paul's original audience, the original readers of Romans, would recognize right away. They would know what he's talking about. This metaphor is used in Jeremiah chapter 18. The whole chapter is called the potter and the clay. Let me read verses 1 to 10 for you. Just listen closely. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good I had intended to do to it. God can use nations as he chooses. This is what Jeremiah is saying. This is what Paul is saying. He can rework them into other vessels, use them for other purposes. So the potter and clay continues this argument, the same argument that Paul's been making through Jacob and Esau, through Moses and Pharaoh, that God can use people and peoples for his purposes. If they respond in faith, he can use them this way. If they respond not in faith, he can use them this way. Now watch what Paul does with this finally, these final verses. And then we're going to put all these pieces together. Final verses, 22 to 24. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? This means ripe, ready for judgment. Vessels that are ready to be judged. What if God has endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for mercy? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So now Paul is ready to put all these pieces together. Paul's ready to make this grand argument now. What if God has been patient with the disobedient in order to, one, show his wrath and his judgment? Yes. Like we saw in Romans 1, there was God's passive wrath of giving people over to their sinful desires. But also, two, what if God is being patient with these people worthy of judgment that the riches of his glory might be shown for his vessels of mercy, which is us, by the way, we are the vessels of mercy. We were those 
wrestles of, wrestles of wrath, no, vessels of wrath, whom God was ready to pour out his wrath upon, whom he was patient with, in order that his mercy might be shown to us. Paul showed in chapters 1 to 3 that both Israel and both the Gentiles had become vessels of wrath, worthy of God's judgment. And God is purposefully patient with the disobedient to one, show his mercy, and two, accomplish his purposes, his purpose of making his mercy known, making his name known, of bringing a blessing to all the world, of bringing himself to all the world. Even, this is crazy enough, even in his judgment of Pharaoh, even in judgment, God was merciful. Moses said, hey, the real God wants you to stop enslaving his people and abusing them. Let them go. Is that unjust to say? If someone took your children hostage and was enslaving them and abusing them, would you come to their door 10 times and ask nicely for them to be let go? No, this is what I would do. I would go home. I would watch some action movies. I would study Liam Neeson, Denzel Washington, Bruce Willis. I would take notes. And then we would go to that house and we would pay one visit. That's what I would do. But God is more merciful than us. God is more gracious than us. God is more patient. He's more loving. God isn't angry and judgmental first, and then he's merciful in some kind of side manner. He's primarily loving and gracious. It overflows out of the matrix of the Trinity. This love is shared and overflows into creation. Whom God loves, whom God is merciful with, whom God has created to be in communion with for himself. And when things threaten and harm this, he is right and just to judge it and act accordingly. He crushed Pharaoh's idols one by one. And that was merciful. We hold on to our idols with a tight fist and God slowly opens our fingers one at a time trying to release us from these things. Where is God destroying your idols and calling you according to his purpose? I think the last two years has shown God destroying a lot of our idols here in the West. Idols of control, idols of freedom, idols of individualism and comfort and consumption. Where is God's hands, where is God's hand in your life trying to make you let go of things and call you to himself? We talk about Pharaoh's heart, how's your heart? We are just like little Pharaohs. The only difference between us and Pharaoh is resources. He just had more stuff, but we set up our own little thrones, our own little kingdoms. We want to be our own gods. He would not respond to God in obedience and faith. Will you? God's judgment is real, but his desire to show mercy is also real. Romans 2, 5 says this, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. But God's desire is to show mercy. God is compassionate, faithful, and long-suffering. So I will leave you with this verse, this last one from Ezekiel 36, 26. God is saying to his people, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Hearts that melt at his love and his grace and his mercy. If you are a Christian, this is the work of, that God has done in you and this is the work that God is doing in you. If you aren't a Christian, this is what we hope and pray for with you, that you would know God's grace and his mercy, that you would respond to it, that you would let the Son of God make you into a child of God. We give him our sin, he gives us himself. So we've seen today in Romans 9 that rather than destroying sinful humanity, God in his mercy has fashioned from both Jews and Gentiles a people for himself, a people marked by faith. We saw that God's mercy cannot be earned, yet he offers it abundantly, even in the midst of his judgment, even in his judgment, God is being merciful. We also saw that God will use us for his purposes. Better to be used as a John than a Judas. So I'd like to leave you with this. Ask yourself really two things. Where is God's hand at work in my life? And how am I responding? This can be something you reflect on today. It's something you can reflect on this week. Where is God's hand at work in my life and how am I responding? And then broadly, you can also pray about this for us as a church as a whole. Where is God's hand at work in Bayview Glen and how are we responding? 